Welcome to Politically Pissed. This is Simon Magakian with my co-host. Saeed Sharbini here. Katya is not able to join us today. Um, she's not feeling too well. No, we wish her the best, though. And we have a very special guest, Rafi Mercury. But before we let Rafi introduce himself, I wanted to mention to our listeners that I'm running for Colorado State House District 7. I was the first to file. Thank you. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> And I look forward to engaging with the community to learn more about the issues that impact the families of District 7. And I look forward to serving them by finding tangible and sustainable solutions to the issues. And as a way of disclosure, I want to mention that Rafi has been helping me with the campaign, but that's not the reason why he's here today. He has amazing background that we want to dig into and talk about his work. Welcome to the show, Rafi. Thanks for having me, Simon and Said. No problem. So um, we want to start today by talking to you a little bit about your background, maybe where you're from, what brought you to Colorado, and uh, some of the campaigns you might have worked on. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm not originally from Colorado. Uh, I was born and raised in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My dad was in the Navy, and um, I'm not like the typical Navy brat. We, we stayed there because it was like his last few years in the Navy. So, uh, But we did stick around in Virginia Beach, and uh, eventually, through a strange series of events, I ended up at uh, Brigham Young University for my undergrad, and which is, uh, if, for those of you that don't know, the, the Mormon school. It's like the flagship Mormon school. So are you Mormon? I'm not Mormon, oh, okay. and I never have been Mormon. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was dating uh, a girl who in high school who was a Mormon um, and then when I graduated she had moved the same year to Fort Collins and so I came out to visit her a few times and then we both ended up going to BYU and she was Mormon so <laughs> that's that's why we ended up there uh, and how I was actually introduced to Colorado for the first time. You fell in love from there you just wanted to stay? Well it's funny because you know I, I saw Fort Collins and I think it's a it's a gorgeous town um, especially in the winter it was all I was like this is a winter wonderland you know <laughs> um, and then especially lately huh yeah, <laughs> yeah especially lately uh, and then after after I graduated from BYU I I was think you know as as most college grads do wonder what's next mm. and I decided to join AmeriCorps uh, and I got an offer to come to Colorado uh, uh, what, to, what is AmeriCorps AmeriCorps is a it's a federal program that the one I was in was called AmeriCorps Vista. There's different programs. Um, we they they bring on recent college graduates um, to do like nonprofit work basically for free. So you get a little stipend, and then at the end of it, if you you know complete it successfully, they uh, give you five thousand dollars in Pell Grant money to help pay down your. So it's kind of like a domestic Peace Corps. It's a, yeah, I would say, and it's it's only a year. I think the Peace Corps is two years. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to the San Luis Valley in Colorado, and when I got there, I was like, oh, this is not Fort Collins at all. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was uh, it was kind of a jarring experience to come to such a rural place because I'd never lived in a rural place like that before. It's a beautiful valley, though. It's well, that's the thing. I you know, at first I was like, oh my god, it's so cold and it's so <laughs> it's so empty and there's no women and there's no you know, it's like yeah. this is, you know, but um, by the end of it, I just felt a very 
uh, I felt very safe there and very at home. And yeah, it's just gorgeous. It's you, you wake up every morning and you're like, mm. oh my God, I'm in this valley. I'm surrounded by mountains. And in the summer, you're surrounded by lightning. And it's, <laughs> it's just <a> really cool. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, awesome. Definitely a beautiful uh, part of Colorado. But what took you to Boulder? So uh, my assignment in the San Luis Valley was at a school at a school district. Uh, it's just you know they're all small school districts, but um, that was uh, Center Consolidated School District. That's probably where where I first became actually more politically active, and then also uh, where I w- wanted to become like a teacher, like get into education. And so when I, I came to Boulder because I had gotten into a graduate program in education and went to CU Boulder for two years for for education. So are you currently a teacher now? No, and this will be a great segue into why I became political, like full <laughs> on. Um, I, I was never really, I never got hired full time to be a teacher because I did my student teaching. I taught for a semester in a, a Denver charter school and even briefly was on the board of that charter school. Uh, but... I think, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, I I saw a lot of things in the schools I was teaching. And I was teaching in, you know, like Boulder Valley School District uh, at Casey Middle School. And that was one of the one of the better schools. Right. I mean, relative to a lot of other places, a really good school district. And even there, um, you see a lot of issues with you know, curriculum and the way teachers are treated. And, you know, that I think I was getting so antsy about what I was seeing in schools and, and I just, you know, said, do I, you know, do I want to come to school every day and work and watch my students struggle nonstop and not be able to teach them what I, what I know they need to know? Uh, or do I want to just jump headfirst into politics and organizing and learn how to change mm-hmm. what I'm seeing? And so that was kind of my start. A quick question, only because we had a whole discussion on charter versus public schools. Yeah, I actually listened to that podcast on the way here. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> it was erotica, yeah. yeah. Where do you stand on on the issue of accountability? Because I think that yeah. has been a criticism of charter schools. And, you know, what yeah. did you experience? Um, so, I, you know, when I was on the board, I was on it for such a short time for a couple of reasons. The, you know, one was I was so new at being I've never been on a board before I volunteered to be the secretary and I like didn't know how to take (laughs) uh, minutes and they were like okay man well maybe not you but um but but also I was I was really frustrated with what I was witnessing on the board um you know there was uh the treasurer when I got on the board you know she would say things like our primary responsibility is to the the bondholders so the people that actually uh, hold the bond for the building that the school's in and we're running a business here. Um, that's something else you would say. And it's not a business; it's a school. I just right. Want to jump in. Sorry, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's a good point. It just frustrates me though when people do that. Like, yeah, because you're right. Like charter schools do that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to well, no, that's idea. okay. I mean, that really is the that reveals the the intent, right? Of uh, your guest said it on that podcast that this is market forces are really the primary motivator behind mm. uh, what innovates in education under the charter school movement. So as far as accountability goes, you know, it was interesting because the board member that oversaw my school was uh, Lisa Flores, and she and I are not incredibly politically aligned educationally, Mm. and yet we both were, we both saw what was going on at the school. We both felt frustrated by the lack, the, the, there's a lot of poor decision making that goes on when your board members are not education professionals, and then 
your staff isn't really, um, you know, equipped to, to handle the administration of the school. And so it's frustrating and, and you think, okay, here are these, you know, five board members that are just appointed by each other mm-hmm. and trying to make, you know, approve budget decisions that were presented by a principal who really is not qualified to be a principal. Mm. And, you know, so you can see where the problems happen. And that year I joined the board and, and also was substituting, <laughs> was like <laughs> was like a teacher. They had They had a third staff turnover. So a third of the entire school staff turned over. I think most of them were were let go of, which speaks to a, a bigger problem in charter schools generally, which is it's there's no tenure, there's no you know long term contract to you know. I mean, what kind of excuses they give? Was it like performance based, or was it just they didn't couldn't afford teachers, or what, like? It can what be a lot. Reasons? It can be a lot of things. I mean, I remember one of the disciplinary actions they took against me in the brief time I was there was because I you know I was joking around with the kids and I at, at, in the cafeteria and I threw a milk carton in the trash like like I was shooting a basketball into a hoop and they were like you know we're trying to set an example you can't do things like that and it was like a big deal they, they you wrote know. you up for shooting a milk carton into but, a basket. well you have to understand the context of this is that you know this was a school where behavior was a big problem um, hmm. it was a middle it was an elementary and middle school and you know it, it was difficult for classroom management was difficult for every teacher there. Um, mm. And so, you know, any experienced teacher will know, or anyone that knows anything about education will know a big problem with the, you know, the reason why that may be is because you have things like a, th- a third of the staff turning over every year and you have, uh, you know, the principal being fired mid year and, and, mm. you know, inconsistency. Yeah, for students, students need relationships and trust and longevity in those relationships. And, if you don't have that, then they're not they're not going to behave for you mm. just just be out of respect. You know that's not how that works. Okay, so all of this is happening, and you're frustrated, and it turns you towards politics. How did you channel that at first? Like, what what were some of your first things you went into? Like things you got behind, stuff like that. The very first thing I wanted to do, and this is while I was um, student teaching, I wanted to uh, run for House District Ten in Boulder. And this is for the 2016 election. So I was planning on it like 2015. But, you know, it quickly was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. There's no, <laughs> there's no chance I can actually pull this off. I don't, you know, know anything about anything. I actually was at a town hall with former uh, House Speaker Hollinghorst. Mm. And, you know, I, I saw a young man who seemed, you know, he seemed to know about young people and be politically active. And I was like, hi, you know, I'm Rafi. Uh, I'm running for House District 10. I, I need someone to help me with my campaign. Would you be interested in like helping me? You know, and they said, "Oh, I'm actually running for Senate myself." And it was Steve Fenberg. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I did like I didn't know who that was." But yeah. you know, anyone who knew anything about politics should know who Steve Fenberg was, even <laughs> even before he was in the Senate. Um, you know, he was like the founder of New Era and did yeah. you know. So I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, and um, and there were two other candidates in the race, and so I met with both of them. Now now House Rep. Uh, Edie Hooten and then her opponent Angelique Espinosa mm. and you know I met with Angelique Espinosa and I, she was a former she was the first Latina city councilor to ever serve on Boulder City Council she was a you know part of a, a very progressive chamber of commerce in, in Boulder uh, and helped institute policies like the uh, bag tax the plastic bag tax in Boulder what, what year was she the first person to serve on Boulder County City Council uh, or Boulder City Council sorry I think I think 2009 2009 yeah so a while that was back. the first Latina 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and it speaks to something yeah. else because I mentioned to Simon too. I was like, you don't generally look like a normal older Democrat. No, I see. know you can't tell on the podcast, but I'm uh, I'm brown. <laughs> um, well, that was kind of my point. Is it yeah. seems to be a pretty homogenized group up there. Le- less so than you'd think. Okay. I mean, it, I'm not going to mince words and say like Boulder's actually a diverse place. I used to joke. <laughs> I used to jerk that joke that like, uh, you know, Boulder had all all sorts of diversity. You know, there's white people with short hair, white people with dreadlocks. <laughs> um, no, but it, you but know, you did, point, though, yeah. you did something amazing. You have become the chair of the most progressive county mm-hmm. in Colorado. So how did that come to be? And yeah. You know, and I, I don't know if the viewers could tell, but you're pretty young, right? And, and yeah, typically yeah, chairs you are not your age. So yeah, yeah, I, tell us how you you, you made that happen. <laughs> yeah. So I was 27 when I was elected chair of the Boulder okay. County Dems. Our entire officer team is actually pretty young. Um, That's what it looked nice. like, yeah. 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 We go back to that race. Um, it starts out with, uh, you know, I volunteered for the Bernie campaign back then. That was after I kind of had agreed to help on Angelica Espinosa's campaign because she was this progressive Latina who was mm. qualified, who, you know, was, you know, she wanted to bring bilingual education and to, you know, to fund it through the state, that mm. kind of thing. And I was like, this is what I get down to, you know. And I was like, well, you know, I don't really know how to do anything on campaigns, but I'll volunteer for Bernie's campaign and maybe get trained up a little bit. Yeah. And that's what happened. And we actually were able to leverage some some stuff out of that. And so, you know, what I learned through that campaign was that, you know, in, in Boulder City, it's really hard for people of color to get ahead politically. Mm. And there were there were a lot of things I saw in that campaign that were unfair or, you know, there was, there was institutional disadvantages. To, you know, for example, just the access to funds. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a wealthier white person in Boulder, you just are having an easier time fundraising. Just call your yeah. neighbors. Right, <laughs> right. It's kind of like a club. You know, people mm-hmm. know there's a circuit, <laughs> there's a circuit there of fundraisers yeah. mm. uh, that you do. You know, that peop- you know the people that do fundraisers, and if, if they are on your team, they'll raise thousands of dollars for you. In that race, Edie Hooten, I think, poured 70 grand of her own money into that race. You know, wow. where do you get that? Uh, right. Yeah. And so it's – so that's, you know, one thing. But there's also this, you know, and it's, it's, more, it's less tangible – but there's also this perception that a competence difference mm-hmm. where I think a lot of voters in Boulder County may feel as though, you know, that like the na- they see the name Espinosa or something like that, and it just doesn't feel as you're not as confident. Um, say like a clerk or yeah. something like that. Right. And that doesn't mean, you know, that I'm not trying to say that everyone in Boulder's like that or that. No. But this is definitely, you know. I could do a whole podcast on racial disadvantages when you're a person of color (laughs) and some that I've experienced myself uh, as a candidate. And we'll probably get into that later. But I I started seeing some problems in the party. At the time, it felt like a a club, like a social club, more than a political party. But I didn't, you know, I, there was a time, you know, everyone wanted to not appear as though they were trying to keep Bernie supporters out. So I think I was, I kind of came into the party as a, you know, a peace offering, right? Like, <laughs> like we're, we are trying to bring Bernie people into the fold, you know, and they were, I think, you know, they, uh, the chair at the time was trying to make sure people who were new that were brought in because of Bernie actually stayed within the party. Um, but, uh, you know, I was, I saw, you know, I was on the help prepare for the assembly with the party and, and, um, just started getting to know the people 
And then from there, you know, I think the next big thing was, you know, I stayed involved. I was a precinct leader. I would volunteer to doing various things. Then I ran for, for county clerk, Boulder County Clerk and Recorder. Mm. I didn't make it out of the assembly even by one vote. It was a bummer. <laughs> I mean, sometimes democracy comes out of those yeah. very few votes, yeah, and every was, vote counts. It was rough. But yeah. um, but even then, I don't want to speak poorly of my opponent because I, I, I think she's doing a great job right now as, as Boulder County Clerk and Recorder. But, um, you know, at the time, people would say that we're, we're basically the same age. We have similar resumes. She was she worked for New Era for a while, but people would say things like, "Oh, I just I feel like Rafi's not as qualified," even though we had you know virtually the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I was even a teacher. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it's these kinds of things that you pick up on. You're like nah, subtle you know. remarks that may mean something that they don't actually say. There's that, and th- there's a lot of things you see as a candidate of color that you you know it's hard to say out loud because it, it can be perceived as bitterness or you know yeah. claims of unfairness when there really is an unfairness. And so you know, plus all the other institutional disadvantages of being a, a person of color, just even being someone who's not you know stinking rich and bolder. <laughs> so. Anyway, speaking of disadvantages and stuff, I want to talk about one campaign in particular that you had a part of. I always want to say right to rest, but I think that was the legislative version. That was the legislative version. What was yours again? Uh, Right to survive. Survive. That was it. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of what opposition you were up against and I mean, it's for disadvantaged people, essentially. And oh man, yeah. It sounds like it's going to be a a little rough for you, but yeah, no, it's there's there were a lot of disadvantages. Primarily, I believe the opposition raised two point five million dollars against us in a sit- I think that was even wow. more than how this. much did y'all raise like a little over a hundred thousand so that's quite a disparaging amount it's a, it's a big disparity and and you know I th- a hundred thousand dollars in a municipal race is is typically normal it's yeah. a, it's, 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 it's not a good a, amount yeah. yeah, but to have that much money raised against this. Remind us what the initiative yeah, would do. We yeah. should probably do that. First. Yeah, start back all, all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So in Denver uh, and many other areas in Colorado, including Boulder, actually, um, we have something called a camping ban. And what the camping ban is uh, is is a criminal statute that says that if you if you even have a blanket over you or a piece of cardboard under you, you are doing what's called urban camping, and you're in violation of the law. And so. Uh, obviously, this is targeted at homeless people. You hear so, the phrase. So, effectively, being homeless is is a crime. That's a hundred percent what it is. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one of the one of the movements. Just to clarify, yeah. a, a crime on on behalf of the homeless, not on behalf of the society. Which, well, you know, no, society morally, saying that it's being a homeless is crime. a crime. It's a government. Yeah. Yeah. It's a government in this case, Denver Denver City Council, uh, saying that it is a crime to be homeless, essentially. You know, basically, police will come along to some kind of encampment and ask people to move along. And where are they supposed to go? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, the, yeah. the the real argument that a lot of people can't go to homeless shelters for various reasons. You know, not the least of which is it's a pretty traumatizing place at times. Well, don't they really limit people who have certain criminal backgrounds too? Yeah, so there's that. And um, being homeless, you're going to end up with some sort of criminal record. It, it can also be that you 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 know have a substance problem and yeah. you're not allowed in. It could be that, you know, you have a family and it's a gender-separated mm-hmm. shelter. Or it could be simply that there's just not enough room. Or you have mental health issues and you've had issues there in the past and they mm-hmm. don't want you there anymore. There's that. And and it's not that you have had issues there in the past. It's that the, the, the environment kind of aggravates mm-hmm. 
things like PTSD and mm. bipolar and, you know, those, yes. those kinds of illnesses. So your opponents were saying we can do better. Yeah. Um, they won. <laughs> they, they won by a lot. They won than, by a lot. Probably so more than I'd ever wh- seen. How are we any. doing better now? Yeah. What are they doing? Well, they're getting sued. I mean, okay. they could lose the – they'd be so kind as to lose that suit. That'd be well, great. They're uh, being sued for – um, Well, you know um, – You mean the, the ban is under lawsuit right now? Yeah. So okay. Jerry Burton is a Jerry Burton is a, a homeless activist and, a, and homeless himself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of Jerry Burton, but we call him the mayor of Jerryville. Oh. <laughs> he he um, maintains a, a semi permanent encampment uh, called Jerryville, and he they all man he keeps keeps it super clean. Um, you know, there's a lot of rules to being in Jerryville. He he. It's basically just one big protest to say this is you know we can live in this context and not you know, be as disruptive and, and destructive, uh, you know, as you, as you claim we were going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so Jerry Burton was, t- he was ticketed to, uh, under the, the camping ban. And so, um, I don't remember the attorney's names, but the, um, attorneys have picked it up, picked up the case and they're, they're now, uh, I think they're appealing the, the case, so uh, or suing the, then. suing the city. Yeah. yeah. Um, because uh, one of the things we really tried to highlight is in the Ninth Circuit, so Seattle, Oregon, that kind of, you know, mm-hmm. mostly S- Seattle's where you would think of this. Yeah. Um, their camping ban was challenged. I'm sorry, I, uh, Boise's camping ban was challenged. Mm. And um, the court eventually found that that ban was unconstitutional because it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And, I guess know, that's one way to look at it, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the point I... You know the ultimate point of this is, if if at any point there's a person for whatever reason that can't actually use uh, or find space in a shelter, which there are millions of reasons why, mm-hmm. you can't criminalize mm. their basic act of survival. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the court said. I think that's um, go- going yeah. going <laughs> back is, to yeah. my question, and yeah. I think it was obvious that it was a rhetorical one, right? You know, <laughs> the opposition was saying, "Well, we can do better." Yeah. Um, other than, you know, fighting the criminalization of being homeless, what are some things that we as a society can do, we as a community, um, or are there, you know, models across the country that have done better job with addressing the crisis of homelessness? And, and can Denver or Colorado copy that? I got I to gotta be honest, not really. <laughs> I mean, for real, not really. Um, yeah. You know, people, I think, talk about the success of Salt Lake City, Utah. They had a program that basically helped fund housing, like just straight up, you get an apartment. I hear about that, yeah. The problem with that is, is of course, not everyone can get that. You know, not everyone gets access to that. And the people that don't are dealing with the same problem. And, and you know, it's kind of swept up. Well, hey, we, we're paying for housing, so, if you, you know, that's your problem if you can't. Hmm. So there's that. Actually, maybe... Uh, one of the more surprising things that helped me understand this issue better, because you know, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a homeless activist. Uh-huh. I came in because I was like, these these folks need the activists that did put this on the ballot need a, someone who knows campaigns and and can navigate those spaces, and so that's what I wanted to do. But I am not, the, you know, there are people out there even right now. Um, do you have any organization names? Or yeah, anything Denver like that? Homeless Out Loud. You know, Teresa and Benjamin, they're great. They're they're running that. They're the they're like the political activists behind this. So I was talking to Therese one day, and 
I told her, you know, I was in L.A. this summer, last summer, and uh, my girlfriend and I accidentally started walking through Skid Row on our way to dinner, which ironically was a very nice restaurant, and we felt very <laughs> bad about it once we got there. Yeah. We started walking through. We were like, okay, well, let's just keep walking. And, mm. and it goes on for a while. <laughs> it's it's, while, it's yeah. not easy to just simply walk through Skid Row. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling so nervous because, you know, I was wearing like flip flops and there's needles on the ground and and I was just it was depressing. I mean, it was like there's no commerce here, there's no shops. It's just real, you know, block after block filled with just tents. tents yeah. I was telling Therese about that and I, and I told her, you know, that's what I experienced in, in Skid Row and it was really eye opening and depressing. And Therese goes, "No, that's a success story, actually." And I said, "What? Well, what do you mean?" And she said, "That those few city blocks that you walked through were." actually the the result of um some very tedious legal and political battles that act, homeless activists fought uh LA city council for because it was bigger and then it shrunk she said it provides a semi permanent place for people to like put tents on um pallets so that you know they're not they don't always have to like deal with the rain and st- you know mm-hmm. think there's a lot and, and they can actually tie it down to something so they, they have a place to go and then also there are services there and that they can stay better connected to those services when they're in like a, in a place <laughs> right and so uh is la doing it right i know they're not but you know it's it's it like they're trying to accommodate a, a problem that may not have a solution but at least Begrudgingly, some yeah. infrastructure, I guess. <laughs> well, they're not providing the infrastructure. The, the people basically just said, we're not leaving and yeah. fought, fought tooth and nail for it. And, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, that whole, if you go there, it's, it, I don't know what they're going to do with that area, but you're, good luck moving those folks. Yeah. You know, no, I didn't, I didn't want to paint you as the homeless activist or anything like no, that. No, no, I, I mean, like, I know it was one campaign that you've done yeah. fairly recently, and I just wanted to talk oh, to yeah, no, about no, it. Oh, yeah, no, no. And, and uh, I mean, I will say that since, since doing that campaign, it's something I, I wanted to devote more of my time to yeah. because it was, man, <laughs> I, it just, if I had to describe the, the actual activists on the ground doing this work, cause I, again, I'm just a political campaign guy and yeah. these are the people that live in this scenario. You know, they, they live and breathe this world and you know, it's, they're just, I mean, I remember we got the endorsement of the Denver Democrats mm-hmm. and that, that took uh, over 70% of the, the delegates there and that the meeting to vote to endorse it. And we fought really hard you got to remember these folks tried to get this done legislatively throughout the state mm. and who Fair. it wasn't Republicans that shut them down. It was Democrats. No one's sticking up for these folks. Yeah. Then to see uh, the, the Denver Dems endorse was like, like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It was like, Oh my God, something good can happen, you know? <laughs> and uh, I remember this one woman, Marianne uh, was there that day and I just overheard her and she was like, it's a good day. Mm-hmm. And it was just such that little victory was such a big deal, but then we lost the whole thing, you know, by by like a, a, a humorous margin. Like I was, I didn't even know how to feel. I think it was like eighty twenty or something like that. Not even. Not even. No, it was. Now. It was. We we had only garnered eighteen point nine percent of the vote. You know, they were crushed. And the thing is, is that there's, it's just another loss, and it's just one. It, it's not that they would. It's a war of attrition. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't. These folks have nothing to do but fight. And it's wh- what more can you take from them? The people trying to prevent this from happening are going to lose. It's it's it was, this was a setback. Yeah. Um, but, it's, you know, this is what happens when people have nothing and the, all they can do is fight. 
Um, and, and I can say that, you know, the reason why I want to continue to work on these things is because you want, I want to honor the people that are like struggling, right? <laughs> it's like, these are the people that are actually trying to do this uh, work and don't, I mean, don't take any money for what they do, uh, are just, you know, finding food wherever they can and just it's bare bones. This is day in, day out. We're going to wake up and we're going to fight these people because they're, this is abhorrent. Like this is a, a uh, disgusting symptom of a failing economic system mm. uh, that's allowed this to happen. And so all we're gonna do is this. Mm. And you know, I get to go home at night to my girlfriend and my dog and have a nice dinner. And that's not what these people do. And so sometimes I felt like a fun, I was like, yeah, I mean like I'm comfortable, but you're not. And then there's a, a little bit of guilt associated with that. But I, I think what, you know, what comes along with that is no one ever wanted, made me feel that way or anything like that. It was like, at every, you know, I don't have all the privilege in the world, but I do have some privilege. You realize what you do and have, you yeah. can't, you know, you can't waste that, especially when you know. And it was so, oh, so terrible straddling this world of you, you work with the, the, the homeless activists and the homeless community. But also my world is political professionals mm -hmm. and to see the cynicism and the doubt and the fear amongst the people that you're like god if only you could see like if why are you so stuck in this fear it was heart-wrenching because it's you see the realities and then you see like the just the no one gives a shit mm -hmm. you know no you're right i mean it seems to be that way in the party is like yeah. we talk about a lot of things we want to do but maybe nobody really actually cares to get them done yeah and that's that's what you know why they were so the opposition was so successful is they they said things like we can do better mm. and that gave everyone a pass like yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah we'll, we'll, do, we'll better. do better don't worry about it um but you know <laughs> it, this wasn't about solving homelessness no one was trying to solve homelessness mm. with this with this ordinance this was just saying hey maybe the government shouldn't make it criminal to do what you have to to use a blanket outside which it literally does. So the actual, uh, real quick, yeah. the actual language of the ordinance is that it's unlawful for you to use any protection from the elements other than your clothing. Yeah. So it's that explicit. <laughs> it's not like a roundabout way of saying homelessness is illegal. They say you can't use anything to protect yourself from the elements other than the shirt on your back. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's really cold today, but it's, there's been colder days mm -hmm. and people die. Absolutely. This is life and death. And, and what we talk about, the things that people talk about are like, if someone slips, sorry, I'm like ranting on this. It's no, just, you know, if someone slipped, uh, you know, on the right of way in front of your house, would you be liable for that? You know, another thing was, you know, I don't want my kids to see that if they're just on the, on the right of way on the other sidewalk. See, that's where I disagree because I'm like, your children should see it so yeah. they understand what's going on and be better in the future. Right. I mean, the, and there's a stigma that homelessness is dangerous, that yeah. they're, they're dangerous, yeah, crazy people. And that, you know, it's not true. It's not. I mean, most people are, most people are employed who are homeless. Only a small frat, like 20%, like 17% experience you know, the kind of mental illness that I think everyone associates with homelessness. And even then it's not like there, that's everywhere. That's in yeah. every community. It's just that it's maybe right in front of you. Yeah. But like the idea that it's just these dangerous people are out there. And I think midway through the campaign, you know, my initial thought was, Oh, maybe young people will support this. This is a progressive thing, but home, but young people go out at night. Mm -hmm. Young people are there and they, they have maybe had a bad experience or seen something that scared them. Young people are not going to vote for this. And not mostly not anyone voted for it. And uh, well, I voted yeah. for it. Not thank you, Simon. Not that you <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have guessed it. Yeah. Um, but I think people don't realize 
that, you know, homeless folks, they want to be around the public because they feel safer there. Right. So the reason why, you know, when we go out at nights and, and, yeah. and see, you know, homeless folks on the streets or by the Capitol. Oh, yeah. It's not, you know, they're there because they yeah. feel safe around us and around public buildings. Right. And to think that actually they are endangering us, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's somewhat bizarre. Of course, you know, accidents oh, happen in, in any interaction, yeah. in, in any situation. But that, that you yeah. know, is something that people don't, don't realize. Oh, people are murdered. People are like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous out there for anyone who's just alone on the streets. And, you know, the reality is the big benefit to this would have been that people could be in community. And I think the voters, you know, your non-homeless folks, when they think of homeless people, they think of just individuals, right? They're just, there's that guy over there in the mm. blanket. Um, but that's not how it exists. No, it's a community. Yeah. And so um, it would be a safer scenario where, you know, you get to just be with your people and be protected. And, mm. you know, yeah. I mean, man, we could go on. All right. Let's talk about some other uh, more recent uh, issues you've sure. been involved with. I think you were working on the minimum wage change in Denver. Tell us. Where things are, I heard that the mayor signed something that yeah. would eventually increase the minimum wage to 15. Yeah, so by 2022, it, it should be at 15.87 an hour. Um, and how were you involved in this campaign? Yeah, so I was a part of, I kind of coordinated, helped coordinate the coalition that was pushing for it called the Work Here, Thrive Here Coalition. And it was made up a lot of, uh, a lot of progressive groups and, and unions. Um, I worked, though, for specifically for Working Families Party. Um, and so, you know, we were there trying to b basically prevent compromises inevitable. So what, what we're trying to do is mitigate like, Hey, how do we not compromise as much? You know, <laughs> how do we, how do we like get as much as we can get? And, you know, it started out with 1587 by, uh, I think 2021, like the, the first increase would have been this January and that would have been right. to like 1340. Um, but, you know, there, for reasons we don't need to get into right now, you legally can't do that. Uh, we, you know, it, or at least it would be, you'd have to prove that we'll you could. you're making me wonder why. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so basically Colorado state law um, says that you can't, uh, you have to increase, uh, a municipality can only increase um, the minimum wage each year by 15% or $1.75, whichever is greater. Mm. So what the plan was, was to piggyback off of the already scheduled statewide minimum wage increase to $12 an hour in January um, to tack on an extra 15% onto that. However, you can only, by state, this is so dumb, you can only yeah. increase the minimum wage on January 1st of any given year. And... We were like, okay, so if you if it becomes twelve dollars an hour on midnight, and you pass a law through Denver City Council that says you know it'll go up to thirteen forty, um, on the same day, that's technically not going off fifteen percent of what the, the minimum wage was. So you'd have to do fifteen percent of eleven ten an hour, which is the current minimum wage statewide. So you would have to wait until they get to the 12 or 13 or whatever that you want to base it off of. Yeah. And then you have to go try and pass the. Yeah. So like if we, you know, if they did this next year, they could do the 15% on top of the $12 minimum wage. That's going to automatically be instated in, on January 1st. And, and then you can have a 1340 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And then one more question on that. So uh, if I understand correctly, unlike state law, this applies to people with disabilities. 
where they have to be paid equally as anyone else. Yeah, so you can't under now under this ordinance uh you, you don't get any there's no exemptions for anyone who's a disability. Uh there's really no exemptions for anyone who's under 18. That was one of the things we had to fight for. What about tipped wages? Yeah, great question. So that's set by state law. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing that Denver City Council can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's set at $3.08 an hour, basically. That's the tip credit. That's the amount of money that an employer can deduct from your wage if you you know make at least that. So tips. whatever the minimum wage is, they could take that much off and pay you that much yeah. if you're tipped. Okay. Right. Um, so, I mean, that there was talk of maybe they're going to increase it this you know this session maybe not um you know we think that we need to abolish the tip credit entirely because mm-hmm. there's no real good reason why you should pay any worker less than minimum wage exactly. <laughs> and it, there's you know create a disproportionate amount of women and people of color are tip workers and so they're insti- institutionally able to pay them less so um that's something that is a whole nother can of worms i think yeah Believe me, yeah, we were, that was discussed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Did you have anything else you want to talk about? Or? I don't think I ever got to why, how I ended up being the chair of the yeah, board. Yeah, <laughs> you, you skipped that, and I thought maybe, you know, there was a coronation. Tangents. No, I mean, it's, it's like I have this professional life where I that actually mostly exists in Denver <laughs> nowadays. But then, you know, for, for the years, you know, after, uh, you know, I ran for – clerk lost but built a lot of goodwill you know like i said um my opponent and i are like friends and i just wanted to support her because she's actually doing a lot of great things and so you know you you just get your name out there you talk about good ideas and then you work for the party and um i think a lot of people from the outside who are progressive especially might see party insiders as i'm talking like activists not like people that are the volunteers for the party and the, show up to the meetings and mm. stuff they might see them as like stuck in their ways and just trying to promote the status quo and I and that's what I thought too when I first started but what I learned is that that's not the case uh, these are folks that care deeply about progressive issues but are very protective about the work that they've mm-hmm. done over the like the, the duration of their involvement and so I just you know I just worked hard and volunteered and and helped improve a, a lot of the field stuff we were doing and and got involved in, you know, the outreach and inclusion team that, mm. uh, so, so sort of a transform the system from within philosophy, you know, I just, to anyone listening, <laughs> there's a lot you should do from the outside and that's important. But if we're talking about big scale institutional change, good luck. You're just not going to do a third party. Yeah. I, I just want to like, I'm sorry. I'm not saying this as a Democrat. Well, and you, you mentioned know, the working families a, a party earlier. And I wanted yeah. to talk to you about that in a sense. I know it's sort of umbrellaed under the Democratic Party at this point. I mean, talk to some people, and it seems like the idea is for it to try to become a third party uh, by branching through it. I mean, some people said the same thing about the Tea Party, though, for the Republicans, mm-hmm. and that never came to fruition either. They just sort of wreaked havoc from the inside. Yeah. How do you see working families and the Democrats in, in that sort of light? I mean, a lot of our people, I mean, off the top of my head, I can name probably five state committee members who run the Colorado Working Families Party who also have an official position within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's not even like some kind of we're going to like get into the veins of the system. But it's <laughs> it's like we're all people who care deeply about progressive change. And so we, we have to we know the rules. And we're gonna we're gonna play by them and do do it better than other people. 
And I don't think the Working Families Party, at least in Colorado, is we're not trying to become a third party. Um, this is an ins- this is an organization that spends its resources and time and volunteers to promote progressive anyone who's progressive, who's a, who's an endorsed you know candidate or an endorsed issue um, like minimum wage increase. And so it was less to do about introducing another party to to be the alternative to the Democratic Party. It's more about, you know, going through Democratic channels to changing what it means to be a Democrat. And it's I think it's been working. I think you, we've seen a lot of success just in the last few years. Um, Candy C. Baca's, uh victory is an example of that. You know, someone who, by the way, supported 300 ardently in in a district that has like a greater density of homeless people and she didn't she was like yeah i support it and she won i mean that was uh and you know working families party wasn't the only group helping but did a lot to to, to promote her anyway so that and you, then i became chair there you go <laughs> <laughs> all right i, I Sorry, think we still I, did I, not get the backstory <laughs> but tangents are my thing yeah. and, you know. congratulations what well, was interesting yes. i came to the boulder uh Democratic reorganization meeting when you were just elected, and a lot of mm-hmm. the folks, you know, were much older and you yeah. know, uh, looked at a, of a certain demographic. So it was it was cool to see this new generation of, of activists uh, yeah. uh, taking the lead and and, and trying to bring um, institutional change that will have real life impact on on the lives of the people we're you know, meant to serve as as political parties, as activists, and as elected officials. They, you know, you, if you do the work and show up, that's what they care about. They, they want to know that they can trust you to to protect what they've worked so hard to accomplish and then build onto it. And so, it's been a great experience. Sounds like you've had a pretty incredible career in politics so far. Very brief, but brief, but yeah, uh, this is incredible, pretty yeah. crazy one. Well, I think. I, we look forward to seeing where it goes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the two of y'all will be sitting up at the Capitol one day. Who knows? <laughs> um, but we can go into final thoughts if you guys want. Sure. Do you want to go first or last? Why don't you guys go? Because okay. I'll you go first something. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I've been really busy with uh, the, with the campaign for the Colorado House uh, District Race, District Seven. Uh, it's a very vibrant, diverse, and progressive community with some tough challenges. Fifteen percent poverty rate in a city that's so rich and so able. And so I think there's so much to be done for the people of this district and the people of the state in the in the capital, in the legislature. And I look forward to this journey to engage with the communities and, and become the best advocate that they can have in the legislature. And those of you who want to support this journey, please visit simon4co.com and donate. Thank you. How convenient that your final thoughts happen to be a campaign pitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I told him he could do it. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I encourage it. Yeah, yeah no, we, we want Simon. Um, so my final thought is at the beginning of the year, uh, there will be a new policy put into place where simple drug possession will now be a misdemeanor. I like where Colorado's going in the sense of drug reform and just criminal justice reform in general. Know that it's it's not just that we need to lower the fact that these are crimes, but we need to get rid of them entirely. Making them into misdemeanors isn't necessarily going to change anything. It'll just flood county courts more than it does district courts now, but it still floods the court system. 
if we really want to see actual change, we need to start moving in the direction of decriminalization and focusing on public health issues instead of criminalizing people that use. I, I think that we can do better. We can do better. I have PTSD from oh, that. Oh, sorry. Slogan. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> um, yeah, here's, uh, here's my final thought. Holidays are coming up. Everyone kind of half jokes about seeing your conservative family and, and getting into political arguments. Um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot uh, over the last few years. Please have compassion and patience for really anyone, but especially your family, that uh, has a, a differing opinion, even if that opinion is to the detriment of, of, of minority communities or whatever it may be. We cannot change anything without buy-in from everyone. We need people to get on board, but that won't happen if we make people feel as though this crazy social change that's happening right now, which is necessary and righteous, those folks will have a harder time fully understanding what's happening than those of us who live in cities or are younger or whatever, and they just want to feel loved. Maybe they miss their kids, and maybe a lot of things are happening that are, that are scary. You know, as we go into this holiday season, you see your family, and just in general, uh, let's all try to have more patience and more compassion for people who just want to put food on the table for their families, but might not have the same political opinions as we do. Well, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and uh, we'll see you next time. You guys want to say bye? Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them We're solid and we don't need to kick them